0: Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. My name is Kevin Canale, the Policy Associate here at MAKO, joined by my co-host, MAKO's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin. And today we have two major topics to discuss. We're going to talk about small cell broadband and election issues. First, though, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, hit on our recent winter conference Michael I thought it was a fantastic conference.
1: Right. I mean we had we had really nice turnout and the energy was great. I I think uh, my, I may have shared this riff in advance of the winter conference but having an event at this time of year feels perfect that we're, we're sort of closing the books on 2017. Uh, Everybody's, you know, we had the session months ago, we've done a budget uh, from Mako's perspective. We did a summer conference and it feels like this almost is the bookend for that year. Now you turn the page, the winter's get, you know, winter weather is here and folks are thinking about the legislative session ahead Uh, next year's budget. It's, it's sort of a, okay, now eyes forward and that's what we usually build this conference all around
0: yeah it was great and you know we we hit on our legislative initiatives for 2018 we had a great closing session that highlighted those and county folks mm-hmm. were able to come and take that message back home there were some great sessions i i Particularly, we'll talk about this a little bit later, a component of it at least, is broadband for everyone, and Mm -hmm. we discussed broadband throughout Maryland and how it's become really the linchpin for business and education, and it's really a necessity throughout the state, but in general, I thought the conference was full of great content and great networking.
1: And you're right that that I mean, broadband is one of those topics I've you know, I've had a hand in, in pulling together a lot of MAKO events. And, and for years now, uh, we put something about broadband service on the schedule and we know the room's going to fill up. We'll have uh, elected and appointed people from from large and small counties who have the issue of the moment or the issue of the year. Uh, it's you know, it's it's one of those one of those big topics. You're right. It's 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 front 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 and center.
0: And Michael, there always seems to be an energy when MAKO is installing its new president and uh, board. Did you get that sense this year uh, with the installation of our incoming president, uh, Jerry Walker? Uh, Sure. I I
1: think. I think it's a it's a natural thing that the, the kind of person who steps up to become a leader of an association like this i mean we're we're asked a lot of their time uh we're gonna we're gonna demand them to you know accommodate their schedule they're gonna miss county commissioner meetings or council meetings to to do the mako gig um but I thought Jerry's comments at the dinner, the installation time, where he was sort of reflecting on public service Mm -hmm. and the the things that he has picked up from people he's met at MAKO and in local government – i I thought it was it was a good tone setter for all the people who dedicate and commit time to what mako's doing and and certainly from the staff perspective, Jerry went out of his way to to single out each of the people on the mako staff and go through the things they bring to the table and they add to the value that's there's that that, that was he's a good egg
0: right yeah, I certainly <laughs> appreciate that, and I know the staff appreciated that. But overall, great conference. We're looking forward to our summer conference uh, next August.
1: We're already saving the date. We already (laughs)
0: saved the date. So let's jump into our first topic of discussion now. This is small cell broadband. And this is is quite an issue across the country, and that issue is now seeping into Maryland. And first of all, I'll lead off by saying it's called small cell because the transmissions don't travel very far not necessarily because these structures are small
1: broadband basically meaning functioning high speed access either wireless or through cable or fiber or whatever mm-hmm. is increasingly seen as an important element for a community it's you know, citizens want it for entertainment or for education or for just information access businesses want it for some of the same but there are an increasing number of business who, who view this as an essential element for their business climate you know the, where am I going to do business I want to have someplace where I have a good internet on-ramp um, so so that's the big picture issue I think the, the, the evolution into small cells mm-hmm. is sort of a change in the delivery system of that of that essential component
0: right and so this is an issue Mako has been talking about for a long time you know, when we refer to the last mile, sort of getting connected in the rural communities, um, you know, and urban communities in some places. And now all people want to talk about is this small cell broadband issue. We've seen some draft legislation that potentially could be introduced this session that is concerning. Let's talk about the jump now to small cell versus getting everyone connected in Maryland, which I think we all can agree is a priority.
1: Right. And and, I mean, this this, this policy issue has multiple dimensions but what's happening now is we have we have jurisdictions in Maryland who are already in the business of working out permits and approval for telecom companies to put up these these small cell transmitters and we can talk for a second about mm-hmm. what we mean but basically it's a you know it's a it's a smaller footprint uh, distribution mechanism than what we're used to these big tall towers that serve for you know a quarter mile or a half a mile radius. Now we're talking about something smaller that just serves 300 feet.
0: Right, so that we're used to the large towers, but when we're talking about these small cells, they could really be used as a booster, right? Just within that 300 foot or so radius to increase network bandwidth and. Downloads at higher speeds, whatnot, but this is really a booster. This is not extending coverage to areas that don't already have coverage. Right.
1: So I think that's that's probably how the market unfolds for this kind of technology. So we're we're recording from a building in downtown Annapolis, and this is a fairly compact area, and there is a fair number of businesses and other other players who who would be interested in service through here. So you could see the downtown Annapolis area being a target for small cell deployment and the idea of you put up twenty five small structures as opposed to three or four high towers as a way to serve you know the, the the crowded downtown area where folks are are sort of clustered.
0: Okay, and we get into an issue here because some of this legislation that we've seen across the country and now coming to Maryland essentially wants to preempt uh, counties, municipalities from enacting any sort of ordinances dealing with small cells and uh, limiting the fees that, uh, you know, counties and municipalities can charge for these companies, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, accessing taxpayer-funded infrastructure, like our polls that are already up. Um, so really, this is just interfering with local governments. And that's been the argument across the country, right?
1: And, and I mean... Natural place to start putting these devices right. is on is on places that are already around sure. I mean so so rather than erecting a forty foot pole every three hundred feet up Main street or down West street here in annapolis let 's look for somebody who happens to have a series of poles, and right. what do you know it 's the local government who has the most accessible infrastructure. You climb a pole, you stick a new device on it, and boom, it's a small cell.
0: Now, that all sounds reasonable, but...
1: Yeah, then, then, you, then you have a policy question, which is a little bit nuanced, about it's taxpayers mm-hmm. who have made the investment on all this local infrastructure. We put up the polls. It's our job to maintain them and oversee them. Same thing with our rights of way and, and so forth. Accessing public conduits and public infrastructure has always been a negotiation to try and make sure the taxpayers who, who have effectively financed all this stuff, uh, that they're treated fairly.
0: So we're very concerned about legislation that would override local authority um, and supplant local jurisdictions' rights to decide how to deploy uh, telecommunications equipment over public areas. Also, an issue that MAKO has is this would not require these companies who argue that they're going to make a huge investment in the state, it wouldn't require them to expand broadband access to rural areas or underserved areas in general. And again, that's something that MAKO's been very concerned about, and the folks who don't have broadband access will tell you that's a big issue.
1: Sure, and and I mean this has been the lingering tricky issue in broadband service for for years now. Uh, the the term of art is the digital divide. Right. You have communities who get great service and communities who get lousy service and to the extent that Internet access, reliable, quick internet access, is a tool for for your kids' education or for your business's survival. Then, you know, if you if you deal out winners and losers, uh, that you you end up uh, you end up casting an awful lot with that. I think that's that's a big part of this policy debate. And I mean, to, I mean as a divergence, but for years, telecommunication was about a franchise agreement with a cable television company or uh, what was effectively a monopoly telephone provider. These are more or less public utilities and you treat them that way. So there's a big government regulation for those kind of services. Um, So when you, when you set up a franchise agreement with a cable company, you can say, if you want to serve here in Prince George's County, you don't get to just serve downtown Bowie and downtown Laurel. You need to serve the whole area and make sure everybody has access and we want you to have public access channels for education purposes and mm-hmm. so forth. That's always been part of the give and take with the government acting on behalf of citizens.
0: Sure. If you want to uh, serve in potentially lucrative markets, you're also going to have to serve in markets that may not be so lucrative, and that way everyone gets that service. But that's not what's happening here. It's completely different.
1: Yeah, and, and states that have already passed legislation or are in the midst of of those policy debates, we've seen the industry say, We want things really streamlined, really easy. We want unfettered access to the polls and infrastructure. We want it cheap. We want it now. We want our permits approved really quickly and and things of that nature, which, I mean, you can understand if you're a shareholder or if you're an executive with the company, you understand their motivation. Mm -hmm. But there probably is a policy balance here with community input. I mean, having – having the city of Annapolis or having Prince George's County as a meaningful actor in where this stuff goes and how the service gets rolled out and who gets access, uh, citizen input at the local level would basically be you know pennies on the dollar if we can't actually have a permit structure, if we can't actually deny a
0: particular request because it doesn't meet with neighborhood needs. Right. And that's some of the stuff Michael's talking about is is in some of these bills that have uh, popped up across the country. Um, The ability to deny for local governments is a a major issue. And I think citizen input is extremely important in this process. So, again, this is a a major issue, this small cell broadband issue. If you haven't heard the term, you've heard it now and expect to hear a lot more of it moving forward. Yeah, stay tuned. After the break, we're going to get into election issues. We'll do that after this. Bye. Back to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale with Michael Sanderson. Now we're going to get into election issues, and we think this is an interesting topic because this should be an active issue during the upcoming legislative session, especially with elections around the corner. And it's relevant because counties fund and operate the bulk of election functions.
1: Sure. I mean, so this this really is a county responsibility. Running elections is it's like a lot of things in Maryland, where the the central policy is effectively dictated through state law. I mean, you don't have you don't have a completely different election concept in County A versus County B. That probably doesn't make sense, but um, the the nuts and bolts and the hiring of the staff and the the actual you know. Pulling this stunt off of getting all these millions of people served on one day, and and the process leading up to that is essentially a county function, so it's it's under the Mako umbrella. And and you're right to say this will be a big year. It always is. Every four year cycle, we're looking toward the upcoming elections and thinking about you know what um, what uh, what things need a tune up or or you know or process improvement and so forth.
0: Yeah, and there is some reason for optimism. I know during the last round of elections there were some. Complaints about long lines and maybe some equipment malfunctioning, but overall, I have to say it is really incredible what our election folks and directors have been able to pull off year after year. The counties and the state of Maryland have committed to providing more equipment, so more voting machines, more of the optical scanners which uh, you know tabulate mm-hmm. the ballots yeah. for the next cycle, so hopefully that 'll lead to some shorter lines and and fewer headaches at the polling places you 're
1: right, and this is I mean, you you think through the, the 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 concept of pulling together the thousands of election judges and people who need to staff polling places and do a professional and honest job yeah. of you know this is a centerpiece thing for our democracy. Uh, but these aren't these aren't people who work on this year round. We right. bring them in, we get them trained, and we send them send them loose on the big day. And uh, it it tends to work out awfully well. It's a lot of a lot of dedicated citizens as well. As, professionals.
0: Absolutely. So let's jump into one of the issues that we have seen over the years, not only in Maryland, but across the country, and it's same-day registration. So currently, 15 states in the District of Columbia have enacted same-day voter registration, but only two states, Maryland and North Carolina, have limited same-day registration to early voting. And Michael, I know this is an issue that we've seen in Maryland over the years and uh, you know, session after session, you hear this term same-day registration, but we do expect this to pop up again in the 2018 session.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, the likelihood of seeing a bill introduced and, in all candor, seeing a bill pass mm-hmm. is pretty high, very high to see it introduced, and, and I think the likelihood of a bill passing is really good. Um yeah, you know, for years, I think there's been some degree of administrative concern from the professionals who who manage the election process at the county level um, that they've always been worried about on you know about do you have a give a hole in the boat. Right. Do, you, do you end up with in the process of hurrying through the paperwork to make sure she wants to register and vote right now? do you end up creating a weakness? that ends up with people registering twice or things of that nature and you know it, for for a, an awfully long time the the people charged with running fair and smooth elections were really concerned about same day registration
0: right so the the idea with same day registration is that you'll get more people out to vote and democracy will be better for it but again we've talked about some of the administrative challenges but now We see things like digital poll books, and and that could help to, to hurry the process along and keep it more secure.
1: I think there's potential for that, and neither you nor I speak from the view you know, as an election director, but we work with them pretty closely. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's at least the potential that we find technology has helped this problem sort of disappear. I don't I don't know what the view of of our sister association for the for the professional election administrators is going to be for this coming year, but this bill will be serious. I think they know that if it turns out it needs a tweak or a change that's one thing but it may be that electronic poll books you know that's a device where if I walk into one polling place, you can mark me as having voted in that polling place, and everybody else across the county recognizes that I've
0: voted. So In real time, if, you'll get if, that information. Yeah.
1: If I'm confused or if I'm trying to game the system and I drive down the road to the next polling place, they'll already know that, you know, Sanderson isn't allowed to vote because he already has. Right.
0: Not that you would do that, but, I'm not you know, that guy. that's <laughs> why we have these protections in place. Sure. So... Um, to do this, you know, to ch- to make a change to allow same-day registration would uh, require a state constitutional amendment because current constitutional language presumes that registration is closed for a period of time before election day. So really, yeah. any bill would just be putting this question on the ballot?
1: Uh, probably so. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't think we have absolute certainty. Um, you have to have a bill that's an amendment to the Constitution. Uh, but in the past, sometimes Constitutional amendments have been accompanied with a bill that would basically implement the right. policy upon approval by the voters. Right. So we saw that with with slots and and and, and legalizing you know, certain forms of gaming. Uh, we saw that sort of happen in two bills. You could see the same thing happen here. Uh, I mean the the mech the, the mechanism of passing a constitutional amendment has. Two two hurdles. One is the obvious that citizens have to vote on it in November, mm-hmm. so it would have to be on the ballot in November of eighteen. We wouldn't be talking about changing the process to register for this coming fall. Correct. Yeah. But the second thing is, it does require a supermajority vote in the House and Senate and the General Assembly. So, in the event that this became a tricky partisan issue or something where you've got you know, hard feelings both ways. You need a 60 percent vote, not just a simple constitutional majority. That usually that doesn't sound like it would be an impediment. If there's a consensus to do this, it would be a, it would be a 60 percent consensus. Uh, but it's one more one more potential hoop to clear.
0: Yeah. And in an election year, yeah. there, there could be some partisan uh, bantering going on. So I agree with you that that is a, a potential hurdle. But again, uh, many states have enacted uh, same day voter registration and, and we will certainly keep an eye out Uh, during this session and moving forward, and and keep you all abreast of what's happening there, if anything. I want to get into another uh, major issue with voting, and that's automatic or universal voter registration. And this is essentially an opt-out system that puts all eligible voters on the rolls unless they ask to be taken off. And under Maryland's current system, an eligible resident can register to vote in one of three ways— you can do it online when you obtain a driver's license or through voter registration drives. And, Michael, we were discussing this earlier, and this is really just inverting the current process, correct?
1: You, you used that the key phrase, I think, opt out, mm-hmm. is, is where we, we've seen different variations on this legislation. There actually a couple of years ago was a bill that – that passed out of the House of Delegates here in Maryland, got to the Senate, got to the floor in the Senate, started taking some heat there, went back to committee and got reworked into a sort of directive to a number of state agencies. So we we have some idea what direction this could go. We've also seen a number of other states that have have adopted something like this. But the the principle is when you as a citizen have contact with the government – uh, you know, right now we have the motor voter. You mentioned at, mm-hmm. at, at, at the MVA, you're renewing your license or whatnot. Uh, they pull up and say, "Oh, you aren't registered to vote." Here's a piece of paper. If you'd like to do it, you can opt in right here, right now, and make it easy. Right. That's current law, and I think the federal government gave us some, you know, some carrots to to have that law. Um, this would be going the other direction and basically saying, "Hi, you're at the desk for this benefit or to get your license or whatever." but the the onus would be on the state agency to say, "I'd like to register you to vote unless you protest and decide that you don't want to do that."
0: Correct. Yeah, so nine states in d c have already approved this, and this essentially would be any anytime you interact with the government or government agencies, you are registered to vote unless you decline, and then the agencies then, transfer that voter registration information electronically to election officials.
1: Right. So that the idea is cast a wide net, gather people who are applying for a license or a benefit or something along those lines or and you know, that sort of thing to to bring them in if they have any interest at all rather than, you know, do you feel like spending 10, 10 minutes on this? It's more like this is part of the process, sign here.
0: Right. So advocates say this will dramatically increase voter participation and that you know, some folks are, uh, they don't have the access to uh, the internet or they don't have a driver's license. So they're not having the opportunity to vote. And doing this would enable those people to get on the the books and and be able to vote. But there are privacy concerns. And there's the concern that I have the right not to drive. I have the right not to vote. I don't want to be a part of this process. And and I don't want to have to opt out. It should be an opt in. Yeah,
1: I think I think this is one of those issues that reasonable people can probably disagree about whether this is too much of a role for government. Mm -hmm. I mean the process of registering to vote, um, especially with words like automatic and universal, it sort of sounds like – this is the big faceless bureaucrat making the decision for you. Those are trigger words, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I don't I don't think you have to be an unreasonable person to have that concern. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some degree of privacy here that you know, people I, I don't know in this in this age of cybersecurity and, and so forth. I mean, are, are you worried about having your name in a database and that sort of thing? I, I guess you can understand that. Um, I mean, for years, I think people have. Have been worried that, well, if I register to vote, that's going to make me get called for jury duty. That's not the law in Maryland, but a a lot of people have that impression. But whether it's well-founded or otherwise... Um, there are some people who would say this really needs to be an individual decision. So we'll see what happens. This, 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 as we, as we mentioned before, this is something that made it partway through the Maryland process a couple of years ago and got gummed up on those kind of issues. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't pure partisanship. Uh, This was more nuanced than that.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, it wasn't partisanship at all. There were Democrats and Republicans who expressed concerns. There were Democrats and Republicans who wholeheartedly supported this. But again, this is an issue that seems ripe uh, for this next legislative session, and, and we'll keep an eye on it uh, and keep you abreast of what's happening there.
1: Right. Also, interesting Interesting point is, do you need to do both of these? Mm. Um, if, if your principal concern as a as a policy person, is you don't want to have someone shut out of the voting process just because she wasn't able to register in the way that Maryland says you register. Um, is it possible you basically solve that problem with same-day registration that lets someone walk in the door and register that day, and you sort of – obviate the need for a bureaucratic process to gather more people early? Mm. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. You you mentioned District of Columbia does both of these. I'm sure that some of those states overlap, uh, but that'll be a question for them to sort out, too.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Let's jump into our What's on Tap segment. Uh, Each episode, we get into what we're looking forward to uh, here in Annapolis and throughout the state. And let's start with the NOT Commission. This is the commission that has been tasked with reviewing school construction funding, and, uh, Michael, as we record this on December 18th in the morning here at Mako, the Not Commission has held its final meeting. They've come up with some recommendations, and very soon we should have some actual pieces of paper in our hand that we can digest. And be able to to sift through this a little bit more.
1: Yeah, so this has been a, a two year process from a basically you know a blue ribbon commission taking a look at at a big topic, right? I mean, the, the between the state and the counties were were generally investing more than a billion dollars a year into building public schools. Mm-hmm. So this is a commitment uh, on behalf of the taxpayers. That's that's a big deal, and people care very deeply about their schools and the condition of the schools for their kids. Um, the idea of adding some more innovation and maybe some more flexibility in how we do that, spending that money wisely, that's been a high priority for MAKO for some years. A number of things that we've been beating the drum on seem to have worked their way into the recommendations for the not Commission. We're encouraged by that. And, uh I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, Martin Knott, the chair of the commission, actually came as as one of our sessions at our winter conference. Had this sort of face to face sit down with uh, with the county executive from Anne Arundel County, Steve Shue. Mm-hmm. I mean, Anne Arundel's been been making big investments in schools, and and they've been trying to look for ways to be smart about it. Uh, and that, I mean, that felt like a really productive exchange for the two of them. Uh, probably fed some ideas that'll work their way into this final report. But I'll be—I'll I'll be one of many people who that report drops, and it's going to be a uh, whip through
0: the recommendations and, and look for surprises and, and good stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think we both will. And, and I will say that session that you mentioned at Winter Conference with uh, Martin Knott and Steve Shu was really unique and organic. There weren't. They didn't have notes. They were both sitting up there in, in sort of big chairs and just having a conversation. And I thought that was really, really great. And it sort of gave you an insight and a side that you, ton- you don't see too often, because typically when you see a conversation like that, you know, they, they have notes or there's some scripted stuff going on. But Really, I thought mm-hmm. it was a great, great session to hear them just sort of talk to each other and, and not have this script and notes written down. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I felt the same way. I thought, I thought we hit on something with that structure, and the, the two of them both took the time to think through how this
0: conversation could go. Um, it was really good for our audience. I suspect we will see more uh, sessions like that at upcoming conferences. Yeah, I think so. All right, so now let's get into our favorite topic, federal tax reform. (laughs) Um, uh, We have to say off the bat that uh, NACO, the National Association of Counties, are really the experts here when it comes to what's happening in Washington. They have been all over this issue. But Michael, we have seen uh, some voting flips. We've seen some changes in the bill. And we mentioned this bill uh, in a previous episode of our podcast. And we did a whole podcast actually on federal tax reform. If you want to jump back in the feed and take a listen. But We now – it looks like this is a done deal. It
1: it appears that way, that the arrows are pointing – Toward uh, both the House and the Senate, having the votes and getting this done in the next couple of days, which had been the timetable all along, to have this process done before the end of the year. So uh, we may very well see Congress done with this whole process in the next couple of days. We've been following a few specific issues, and I mean, I mean, there's there's lots of coverage out there about the details of the bills and the different, you know, the different new bands of tax rates and who will be affected by by A, B, and C. There's a couple of local government relevant provisions that are still sort of in play. The state and local tax deduction is is an awfully big one that we have been watching.
0: Yeah, so what basically has happened now is there's there's a cap on state and local tax deduction. It's going to be a $10,000 cap and you choose from column A, column B or column C, right Michael, you can choose property, income or in some states sales tax.
1: Yeah, it looks like you either get to choose property or maybe you can bundle income and sales tax mm-hmm. together there are a number of states that don't have an income tax uh, you know, Maryland is relatively unusual we've made a conscious effort you know we we meaning policymakers of decades gone by this right. isn't anything that's happened recently but but Maryland has made a pretty pretty uh, conscious effort to rely on income taxes which can be more progressive or more structured than property taxes um, we're more relied on we're more more relying on income taxes really than any other state, certainly at the local level. So the the notion of including income taxes in the possible write-off for state and local taxes is a turn for the better for a fair number of Marylanders. Uh, we haven't seen how this dust is going to settle. For for how many people is this going to still be wiped out by the increase in the standard deduction? Folks who just won't itemize anymore. But um, I think you know, once this bill passes, we'll see all the you know all the analysts here in Annapolis, the uh, the analytical class will get to work and and sharpen their pencils and sort out what does this mean for the state? What does it mean for local local governments, and for taxpayers.
0: Yeah, so once the dust is settled here, we know that the Department of Legislative Services, as Michael alluded to, uh, will take a look at this bill and, and they'll let us know more in depth what it means for Maryland. Yep. So again, something to keep an eye on and we will keep you posted.
1: And and at that General Assembly forecast session, one of the one of the closeout uh, events at our winter conference, uh, we heard all three speakers, um, you know, we heard uh, you know, J.B. Jennings is the minority leader in the Senate. We had um, we had Doug Peters, the majority leader in the Senate, and Maggie McIntosh, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, and all three of them went out of their way to say there's some uncertainty in the state budget as a result of what happens with federal taxes. So until we've seen how that plays out, there's still a question mark looming, looming over the state budget.
0: Absolutely. We're going to close out this episode. We hope you have a safe and happy holiday. Michael, any closing comments uh, before we close out here today?
1: Just, uh, you know, I, I I make this reference to the cold weather for our winter conference, but for for folks like us who are in this business in Annapolis and policy-type people, um, the cold weather brings about a mindset that it's time for the legislature to come back to town and all these apartments to get filled up with with legislators and all the all the folks who who work in with them and around them and so forth so we're gonna we're gonna see that happen pretty soon we're gonna have a new budget proposed and we'll have a state of the state address from the governor and it's gonna feel like game on and by the way this is that four-year cycle this is year four so that means uh half again all that
0: yeah it's certainly there is a buzz and an Uh, and we're all very excited but we will see you soon after the holidays again safe and happy holidays from Mako to you and yours see you next time